The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. And we're live. It is Monday, January 17th, 2022. It's Martin Luther King Day. It is 5.02 p.m. And uh, before we get started, Scott, give us an update on your nano project. Oh, oh, uh, I ran into a nano problem. Um, uh, Yeah. Um. Uh, you can do it, Scott. Words. I, 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 let me just say that um, we're, we're, we're still up and running. There's just some regulatory issues I need to clear um, before what, I... What kind of regulatory expand issues? expand on that? Um, Did you want to explain to our guest uh, what the Nano Project is and... Oh, it's not a big deal. It's it's not a big deal. No, it's a nano. It's very small. It's a a nano project. Um, um, Absolutely. Yeah, I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but it's about how um, to teach um, uh, people how Bitcoin works. I would open up a Bitcoin account and then, you know, buy Bitcoin and then show how it works and then how it goes on the ledger. And then I would make an NFT of a tweet and then sell that and then show how that goes on the Bitcoin. But it's not a big deal. Um, you know, I, I, people make a big deal out of it, but it's just a small. No, project. actually, nobody makes a big deal. <laughs> but do you, do you ask Scott about this at the beginning of every show? Uh, no, he announced the nano project uh, last uh, week, last oh. week. And uh, I thought we would check in. But uh, he's run into regulatory problems. Do you yeah. want to specify what the regulatory problems are? Um, I'd rather not, but okay. I will. I'll t- I'll speak about it at a la- at a later date. <clears throat> which okay. coin? Which coin? Can you say which coin you bought? Uh, oh no, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm buying it as I do it. Um, it's going and it's just gonna be Bitcoin. It'll just okay. be Bitcoin, just I like. See. And how it, wh- how much? Bitcoin are you going to buy? Because like for a reasonable sum of money, you can only get a tiny fraction of a Bitcoin at this point. Yeah, but yeah, but not and not that unless you're like Preet's brother or something. Well, <laughs> one of the one of the most interesting thing. I mean, one interesting thing is that if you towards the end of the show, I looked at the poll and that I think only eleven percent of the audience and and we had almost a hundred votes. Only about eleven percent of the audience had ever bought cryptocurrency. Did you did you ask um, the second question, which is always interesting to ask? And I've been in audiences where people are asked, "How many of you have ever bought cryptocurrency?" Hands go up, and then you ask the subsequent question of those who have their hands up, "How many have ever bought anything with cryptocurrency?" <laughs> hands every, go down. Every hand goes down. Right. 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 Well, right. So. 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 Uh, but I ran into a nano problem. So. Um, but you won't say what it is. <laughs> No, not at this time. Okay. Okay, nano well, problem on the nano project. This is a very that, good update. And um, all of which is a uh, mysterious and long-winded way of saying that we are not allowed to have fun anymore. <laughs> but we are allowed to have Preet uh, return to the show after Damn. a long absence. Hello, Preet. When, how was are I, you? Was, when was I last on... I don't know. Greek chorus. When was uh, when was Preet last before on Omicron? Yes. Yeah, so how Omicron. are you enjoying Omicron? Was that? How are you enjoying the Omicron? <laughs> well, I enjoyed it for ten days when I when I had it. Back oh, in really? December, oh no! Back Bummer. in December, I was one of the early folks. Everyone, like every I mean, every day, like 10, 20 people would say they they got it that I knew personally. So that's over. And so now how, um, may, I, may I just ask how it yeah. affected you? Yeah. So, you know, some people don't like it when you say mild because it means different things to different people. I had a two and a half day cough, uh, fatigue, 
you know, a little bit of achiness. And then I was fine. Um, and my wife got it and my 16 year old son uh, got it. And, you know, they were, uh, they tested positive two days after I did. Uh, we isolated in the house for a number of days and we're fine. And it, it's so almost- you are triple vaxxed and you've had it. Do you basically yeah. feel like you are <clears throat> no, I can invincible fly. now? I can, and I can, yeah, no nano problems for me. Right. Do you, so do you just go outside I'm and, say, to and say cough yeah. on me, sneeze at me? Like, like, do you engage with the world on the basis of, like, my invincibility? You have superpowers? No, well, well, I do, and I'll tell you how. I, and this is a luxury problem, but you know, in the city, I feel like last winter, when we had no vaccines or, or uh, almost nobody had vac been vaccinated yet, last December, early January, lots of restaurants in New York had really good heating situations outside and this winter i think a lot of restaurants didn't expect that to be true whether it was a local diner or you know um someplace more fancy and it's it's harder to eat outside <clears throat> in the last couple of weeks because it's cold um if i had not gotten omicron omicron i'm not sure that i would be venturing outside i mean into restaurants to eat but i but i but i have and often it's with someone else who also has had it and it feels pretty safe, at least for, you know, a few months. And and so are you uh, if you had it to do over again, would you not get Omicron or are you basically pro Omicron? You know, I'm, I'm kind of pro Omicron because because <laughs> in hindsight. All right. It, there it you have smart. it. Everybody everybody who has ever it. been prosecuted by Preet Bharara and hates him, I'm looking at you, Dinesh D'Souza, Preet Bharara has just why, endorsed why the mention, Omicron virus. Why? Look, <laughs> if it plays out, look, look, you know what, I'm going to double down on that. There are lots of people who think that the uh, end what? game is actually brought about by Omicron because it's milder. It happened at a time when many, many, many people are are vaccinated and boosted. And it may be that the ultimate epitaph of COVID as a pandemic versus, a, a, you know, being endemic will be th the main character. And that will be Omicron. Yeah, pre Omicron 2024. <laughs> 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 so, uh, so what are you up to these days? Spell. I'm sorry. So what are you up to these days? You're doing your podcast. <clears throat> Do the you've, podcast. You've sold your company. Sold the company to Vox. I mean, people always get very confused. They, uh, when you say it quickly, uh, every once in a while, I, I say, you know, we sold Cafe um, that you're familiar with that makes the podcast and has the newsletters and notes from various contributors. We sold it to Vox. And sometimes people will sort of blink and look at me and they won't say congratulations or that's great. So you um, own the Cafe? Well, I realize that they think that I've said Fox, F O X. Oh, <laughs> you know, oh. place and there's sound, and you know, I'm an immigrant, so I don't maybe always enunciate well. So they think I've said Fox, and they kind that's of don't, know, they kind of don't know how to react. Like that well, seems that's... off brand for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're like, what? What? That's, uh, that's so, so a, that's a great story. I mean, that's a really. I didn't realize it at first, and and you know it's funny because people people are very polite, even in the city of New York, and they won't say like that's wacko crazy. Why would you Why would you do that? They just are sort of smiling. Oh, terrific! And how's your family? <laughs> do you think there's like there's just not also a name recognition for Vox in the same way? Possibly. I mean, yeah, no, Vox, that's true. Like, yeah, I think that's, no, that's you know. no, that's also true. It's also just the V and the F are are the V and the F very, are very close sounds, and you know, Ox is Fox is such a like right. It, they're not actually. Like if you said Vox News, everybody would think you'd said Fox News, and if right, you, no you right. Know, if, if if you if said I, if I said I have I have no Vux to give, I right. think I, don't, I think people would know what I meant by that. And so yeah. I I think it's like actually just we're taking contextual cues when we distinguish between Vox and Fox, and yes, you professor, know, that, that's what we're doing. There we go. I agree. Yeah. So. Uh, so then what are you like doing with yourself now? Are you, are you writing more books? Are you, are you, uh, 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 mostly podcasting? Like what, what occupies 
Well, I start teaching again at NYU next week. I do the commentary. You know, I. I Wait, I've what are you teaching? Of, what's that? I, I teach a seminar. Um, I, uh, on what? On criminal justice. It, it follows the arc oh. of my book, <clears throat> uh, Doing Justice. It's It focuses a lot more on sort of how people make decisions using discretion than how to interpret particular statutes. Um, I think we, we don't do nearly enough of the former in law school. And as I say to the class, <clears throat> um, and one of the reasons that motivated me to write the book is like, I would never put in the top 100 difficult decisions or tasks that I had, um, you know, writing a brief or um, advocating a position based on the law or interpreting a statute. <clears throat> it was always something that you, you were never taught in a book like how to get a reluctant witness to testify, um, uh, you know, how to how to decide when to arrest someone, balancing the need to have a strong case versus the need to take the person off the street so that they don't harm themselves or harm someone else. Nobody, nobody teaches you that. Um, but they're not legal questions. They're not. They're, it's So it's a criminal prosecution, criminal law seminar, but it's really a moral reasoning class. Uh, and I and I try to get the students to think about how to make decisions and to understand. So I be, I begin the class actually. My, the first day of class every year, <clears throat> I begin with um, a particular hypothetical. It's not a hypothetical that the sitting president of the United States calls up the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York and leaves a message to be called back. What do you do? Because obviously <laughs> that's what happened to me. <clears throat> and it's amazing how many people at the outset even though they know the, the reading and, they, and they, they know the story and, they, and they've done some reading, is largely like, yeah, you, yeah, you call the guy back. I don't think it's a big deal to call the guy back. And then you peel away the layers of why that might be not a good thing to do. And by the end, everyone's like, oh, glad you didn't call that guy back. <laughs> <laughs> but that's true, in a, <clears throat> that's true in a lot of circumstances. And you know, not to get philosophical, I, I think that's a problem <clears throat> in how the public sometimes uh, interprets and analyzes information. So it's breaking news, right? That there's some story about Matt Gates, or there's some witness who come forward, came forward with something, you know, something happens and people immediately, <clears throat> immediately have a view about whether the person should be locked up or not locked up, or is it a good thing or a bad thing without context. So, so part of the enterprise is not just in law school, but for people generally to take a moment and wait and hear the whole story. Okay, so I wanna ask you a version of this question uh, that actually doesn't involve criminal justice. It involves okay. the sort of broader national security apparatus. And I wanna ask it in, def uh, lay my cards on the table. This is a very hard question, I think, that was faced by one Dick Cheney. And I think he got the answer wrong but I think it's a legitimately hard question. I just want to throw does it, it out have there. To do, does it have to do with the fact that he requested an apology from the guy he shot in the face? No. And it does not have that's to do with invading... That's a hard one, not, too. It does not have to do with invading no. Iraq, either. Okay. Um, uh, so, uh, I forget whose uh, book this is in, but it's... Uh, uh, the CIA recovers a plan for a weird object. And they uh, recreate this odd object and they figure out what it is. And it is a device to deliver cyanide gas to do effectively what the Om Shinrikyo attack in Tokyo had done pretty ineffectively. That is to have a mass casualty cyanide attack on the New York sub subway system. And they actually build the device to see if it would work. And they determine that it would work. And they bring it to the Oval Office to show it to the president and the vice president. And Cheney watches this presentation on it and responds, uh, if there's a 1% chance of this happening, we have to treat it as a certainty that it's going to happen. And this comes to be called the 1% doctrine, which, of course, then does play a role in, you know, in certain aggressive actions overseas. So I've always thought that one, the 1% 1 doctrine, as stated, is wrong. 
but there's some, if there's a 50% chance of it happening, you got to treat it as a certainty, right? It, it's sort of conceptually right, but mathematically seems wrong. So my question is, uh, this is actually strikes me as very similar to some of the questions that you're talking about. That is, when do you take somebody off the street versus when do you keep... So how should Dick Cheney have thought about a well-developed plan to build a cyanide delivery device for the New York subway that we have no indication, you know, the CIA had, had captured it and figured it out. Um, but there's some chance there's people in Al-Qaeda who were thinking about doing it and have planned out and mapped out a device that would actually kill a shitload of people in New York. How do you think about that if you're the executive branch? I don't quite understand what the question is. Um, is the question, um, do you shut down the subways? Until well, you I, find I mean, is, is the question, do you take you know, extreme measures to find the people who built the thing in the first place in a way that borders on violating Fourth Amendment rights? Is it, you know what I mean? I don't know what plan of action the one well, percent thing causes. I want to start with, is the number one the right percent? Well, could I ask a question about that quickly, Ben? Like, yeah. so I'm concerned, I'm a little confused from the framing. So, not the framing, but like, I'm a little confused from the word likelihood to happen. Because likelihood to happen is like, Ben, you raised the, the effective point that like likelihood to happen, um, uh, like it would actually have to be over 50% to treat it like it's actually going to happen. Uh, I think that there's, I mean, it would just strike me as like what maybe he meant more precisely is that there's 1% possibility that this technology exists effectively and can be in the hands of people. We need to do like, we need to treat it as it is, as it is a certainty that this event will happen because there are enough bad actors out there that will get this technology and use it. Like that's, is that what he meant? Or is it like, did he mean like 1% chance equals like, it's so bad. The outcome is so bad, potentially, that 1% chance makes all cost of mitigation worth it. I, he meant the latter. And okay. I think he meant if there's a 1% chance of this happening without you doing everything you can to stop it, you have to do more. I, 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 can I give an alternative interpretation? What I think he meant, or else it's kind of absurd, as you, as you described, because there's like lots of 1%. Right. Um, and so there's going to be clashes. But I think what he means is that um, there are certain types of threats that are constant and chronic and persistent. Um, and, you know, you just have to treat them as persistent threats um, and always guard against them. And that's what the 1% means, is that you have to treat them as a persistent threat that you have to guard against. Um, that it rises to that level, but not that you have to throw everything in its protection uh, uh, because then you'll, I mean, like it, it's a, kind of an impossible thing to require. So what what do you think of it, Preet? Yeah, I, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm having some of the same difficulties understanding what, what the available courses of action are. I also, by the way, just as a general matter, the business of assigning risk and probability to things, particularly things that have never happened before, <clears throat> people screw up all the time. I mean, you know, there's there is a lot of mistake and error in figuring that out. And also the people who are depending on the circumstances, <clears throat> and certainly here when you're talking about the national security state, there are people who have a built in bias in favor of assigning a greater likelihood or probability of something happening than maybe other people might we're not part of that institution right if you're a hammer everything looks like a nail um so so i don't you know i don't i don't i don't know how you deal with that um I, you know obviously what matters i mean look i, I think about the, i think about at what points in our history was there a one percent or more chance that at some point the soviets would launch a strike against us probably at, probably at many points but i still don't understand what that means in terms of an ethical question for the people who are trying to avoid that event. 
so uh have i ru have i ruined the have i ruined the hypothetical I ruined no the i mean i i i think it's a very interesting problem <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you how it comes i'll tell you how it comes up i'll relate it back to one of my cases right yeah there was this was on the front page of the new york post for a while there was a guy named gilberto valley uh whose wife thought that he was having an affair because he would be on his laptop late at night and wasn't coming up to sleep some years ago and so she installed spyware on the laptop <clears throat> and what she saw and discovered that he was doing at night was much much worse than a mere affair and what she discovered was that he was engaged in uh, constant chatting uh, on various sites and emailing and texting with people about um, kidnapping raping killing and eating particular women right he's the so-called cannibal cop I was really kind of like solidly like waiting for what could be worse to a woman than like finding out her husband is having an affair late at yeah. night. And I well, think that knocks it out of the park. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. you got me. Yeah. Like, so she, yeah, so, I, so, so the wife, she saw that she got, a, I think she got her baby stroller and some stuff and went out to the park, called her father, who was a retired cop in Vegas, went straight to the airport, never went back. So we proceeded to investigate. And by the way, the other interesting thing about this guy is he was an active duty police officer with a firearm and sweet i don't want to spend the whole hour talking about the case but it, you know there was at that point arguably it's not quite as simple as this at that point arguably you have you know a radical fantasy um and you don't have overt acts we had a couple but to make this simple i'll just say look you, you didn't know exactly what was going what was going on um ultimately the fbi wanted to introduce uh, a couple of undercovers to him so that you could control the evidence that you're collecting, see if he would take acts. You know, there were particular people who had been identified. And at one point he did a search for chloroform, which was going to be the method by which you subdue someone. But you wanted much more than that to prove later in a court of law that it wasn't a thought crime, that the fantasy had graduated to reality. Uh, and it wasn't just a bunch of people talking nonsense even in a disgusting way on some chat room. <clears throat> so we developed some evidence, arguably enough to bring a case, but we don't want to bring the case yet. And then we find out, so this is getting to the nub of your question. Then we find out from IAB internal affairs that <clears throat> the officer had decided to put in for a vacation, 10 day vacation. Now he doesn't know that he's under investigation. He does know <clears throat> that his wife is freaked out and has left him. He's a little bit, you know, uneven. Um, you know, separate from the text he's sending and the mindset that he ha that he has, and there was a my recollection is there was a debate between the lawyers, you know, the you know my office, me, my team, and the FBI, because there was I you wanted to have more evidence to bring to bear, but going to your point, what happens if he does the thing? God forbid, right? I actually right. titled and, and, how, and how likely do you have to believe? So, but 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 this is why I, I have a problem with the hypothetical. It's an it was an impossibility to assign a value yeah. to that risk. The FBI was very confident that they could keep eyes on him. But but one of the considerations that comes into play, and I asked the students this, and I'll ask you, is it is it proper or not? The following consideration, and that is, um, it's it's a less pure question but I think it comes from a good place. And that is, if you are the responsible, if you're the party responsible for safety, right? Given that that's your responsibility and you're not some third party person, you're not an insurer, you're not a gambler, you're not a bystander, but you're the party responsible for keeping everyone safe. You are always going to, and I think appropriately, appropriately so, err on the side of maximum caution and take if the guy If you're the one the that fall, the liability falls on, yeah. Yeah. With the blame, if there's a fall yeah, through. Because, yeah, because, and I, God forbid, so the, so part of the discussion is, yeah, you know what? The FBI is pretty good. They probably can keep eyes on him and we can build a better case. The question was, do we have a sufficient case now? Yes, not the strongest case, but we have a sufficient case now. Are we really going to risk this, this guy who clearly has had a lot of personal problems, who we believe is actively conspiring to kidnap and kill and cannibalize women, identifiable and, and identified women. And just to be clear, if you were thinking about this in a pure, uh, in the pure setting of optimizing the criminal case, you would do what happens with a lot of 
you know, Al Qaeda sympathizers, right? You'd set up an FBI agent. That was exactly a, the plan. As, and, as a woman and, who wants to yeah. be cannibalized, and it, you know, that was the plan. And but for his going on vacation, like we were, we were sufficiently. Um, How's the jurisdiction yours here? Instead of like state or con, local police, con, conspiracy Sorry. kidnapping, interstate commerce. He, he had done. Okay. He had done a bunch of. He had he had scoped out people in another state. Okay, got it. Um, That's what I figured. But I was working very not with the DA's office. We're, it's an NYPD officer, <clears throat> and the question was, you know, there's going to be hell to pay. Like first, it'd be bad if someone got killed, obviously, and then on top of that, institutional responsibility. There would be hell to pay. You would people would would nobody later is going to say, well, I understand that you were doing a risk analysis and you're trying to build up a stronger case. All that anyone would see for the till the end of time was you had some proof on the guy. He was going on vacation, you lost him, and he killed somebody. And in that circumstance, I think, and I don't know how this, I'm wondering how you think this relates to the Cheney 1% question. How do you do anything but arrest the guy? And by the way, the epilogue to the story, but you should buy the book and read it anyway. We convicted him at trial, unanimous jury, I think on all counts. Um, the judge then, after the guy spent 18 months in prison, finally ruled on the Rule 29 motion and ruled in favor of the defendant. Guy got out of jail after doing like two years. So, you know, part of the moral of the story is there are costs. We, we we needed we needed more evidence, at least as far as that judge was concerned. But I go back and I think I I still wouldn't have done it a different way. Reaction. And what if he kills and eats somebody now? Well, then that's on the that's on. <laughs> Yeah, no, that Trump shouldn't have fired you. <laughs> can I can I say that this is like so? I I actually think that this is an important conversation for a couple of reasons. One, it's interesting to the one like the conversation that Ben brought up, and I think that this is a great example of like when you make the poll to take them off the street or whatever. But the other thing is that like is that people who can't pass the buck or who are going to actually be the but for cause or be seen in a post hoc analysis as the but for cause to X going free or bad event happening, right, are, are, are always going to be risk averse for completely self-regarding reasons, but also for public <laughs> regarding reasons. Like right. They have both sides of the line there. And so like, Right. This is, by the way, the same reason that we don't have any type of prison reform or sentencing reform or parole board reform or like anything else is because no one wants to be the fucking guy holding the bag when they let some <laughs> like when they pardon yeah. someone or they let although, some guy out early. Yeah, although it depends on what risk you're trying to minimize. Right. So I could change my hypothetical and I could I could change the facts a little bit and say, look, <clears throat> we were so you know averse to the risk of him doing something bad but imagine that like there was a very low likelihood because we had the best fbi surveillance team in the history of the universe and they were going to be watching him um, and let's also assume that we didn't even have really you know a, a good prima facie case to convict him after arresting him but we did that anyway and the case gets tossed and it is it is publicly seen to be a lousy crappy thin stupid case that we that we brought too soon uh, and weighed against this very low likelihood that harm would have come because there was a great yeah. surveillance team and then he goes and does something bad and you blew it because you, you blew it in the other direction right. but let's talk but let's talk about still another direction where sometimes these cases get blown which is the young perhaps mentally ill uh kid who has some attraction to al-Qaeda or ISIS, right, who may or may not be really dangerous, but the FBI notices in conversation with some ISIS chat board, and they do what they do in those situations, which is isolate the person, get them chatting with the FBI instead of with real ISIS, yeah. and then, you know, get them to agree to fly a drone into the Pentagon and they sell them, a, you know, they arrange for them to take delivery of a fake drone that won't actually fly and fake explosives. And you end up with these plots that are yep. um, almost entirely driven by the Bureau, yep. except in the limited sense that 
they were on to this person because they were they were they were really into it. Yeah. And so you have no way to know if that person is actually the cannibal that you've stopped from raping and killing. Well, and you don't want to take the chance because once again, <clears throat> look, you see this in, in, in all sorts of cases. It happens all the time, right? Some and you know, varying circumstances. <clears throat> a guy goes and shoots up, a, shoots up a house, shoots up a school. And then you find out, well, there are all these red flags about the guy. Right. And the recriminations begin at that moment sometimes on the part of the same kinds of people that if you would take an action at the initial time would have said you're being overbearing law enforcement state. Right. And we had, we had a case like that. Cromney, very controversial case where, you know, we convicted four men um, who uh, were not very bright <clears throat> of plotting to blow up a synagogue um, in our district. Um, the judge, you know, had some criticism for some of the methods of the FBI in that case. Uh, I can't remember if they made an explicit entrapment defense argument. I think they did. <clears throat> but look, I teach that class and uh, I teach that case in, in my class too to ask the honest question, like, what would you do in the same circumstances? It's yeah, very, so very difficult. I'm totally sympathetic to the Bureau in these situations. Right, because so, it, it, is also, so, it also so, happens to be the case in recent times. Yes, the fanciful plot of building a bomb of a certain character in nature, in nature and complexity and moving like all that's i get that 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 seems fanciful with respect to the intelligence levels of some of these people but what's not fanciful is that fails they don't know how to do that um it is the view it is not, it is, not it, is the, it is the not unreasonable crazy view of people at the fbi that someone who evinces uh, an interest in killing americans and and waging jihad against america maybe they'll decide one day they're just going to swerve their suv into a crowd of people waiting in line somewhere and we see that happen it does it doesn't take you know amazing intelligence to commit a terrorist act anymore right so but then if you if you if you take these cases and you say okay there's three risks right one is you ignore somebody because you're gathering evidence until he actually does something horrible uh, or you, you gather evidence too long and you lose control of the situation. The second risk is you interdict too early and you don't have a case. That's your cannibal situation. And the third is that you successfully divert um, into a, a, a highly controlled environment and you end up nailing somebody for something that might be dramatically in excess of what they were actually capable of or desirous of pulling off on their own. <clears throat> yeah. And you end up, you know, taking a kid who is infinitely rehabilitatable yeah. and actually needed therapy. But, but I think, and, I think, I think certain, certain attributes of this, certain um, aspects of the situation matter. So I, I make the point, um, to my students and also in the book that now suppose we're not talking about a crime of terrorism where literal homicide is the potential threat, either in the cannibal cop case or in the, in the synagogue case. Now assume it's, it's a financial crime um, of not very significant um, you know, consequences, right? And you see people doing this kind of thing too. They do, so, you know, there, there are people who not unreasonably think that stings are bad, but it depends on the nature of the sting, right? So you, you started the conversation with a device that was really, you know, horrifying in the consequences for death that it could uh, cause. And I mentioned a couple of things that are also horrifying, but I think the criticism is much, much better placed when you're talking about some police departments that go out and engage in stings where we're not talking about death. We're talking about a property crime or an economic crime. So, for example, <clears throat> you know, I'm told that there was some some prosecutor somewhere who would, um, you know, walk, I, I, walk into a store uh, and with no basis to think that anybody there was a criminal or criminally minded or wanted stolen property, they would sell an iPhone or sell an iPad. Say, who wants to buy this iPad? I just, you know, I just I just stole it from a store. I think that's terrible, <clears throat> and and you don't need to engage in that kind of conduct and police activity for an iPad. 
but the calculation is different when you're talking about death. I think that's exactly right. Um, and I also think that this is one of those situations where we do not have a good, I dare, Scott, I, you know, we don't have a good trolley problem philosophical answer to this, right? Where you say, where we, we have a kind of philosophical model of the right answer. You just have risks of different bad outcomes that you can't quantify, like there's one person lying on this track and five person people lying on this track. Uh, and I actually think it's an under-theorized problem. You know, yeah. how do you think about the low probability, very high consequence event? Um, and how do you, what, what constitutes success and failure if you screw up the criminal case but prevent the event? And by the way, what if you don't know if the event wouldn't have happened if you'd done what you'd done? There, there are too many, <clears throat> too many unknowns and unknowables. Look, I'll, I'll ask a different question. That's something I believe. You know, this this issue of, <clears throat> of um, entrapment. Uh, that gets talked about. You know, how you think about entrapment, in a particular case, will depend on what, the conduct, that someone is agreeing to engage in, is right. So it's one thing <clears throat> for a politician to argue about entrapment, depending on the circumstances, to take some kind of bribe. And I think uh, we're not making a legal point, but just a sort of a general moral, you know, human observational point. Yeah, you can see how a person who is in a, in a bad way might have their will overborne and they engage in some kind of criminal conduct, maybe taking a bribe, maybe cooking a book, something like that. Right. To my knowledge, at least this was true two years ago. No entrapment defense had ever been successful in a case involving an allegation of terrorism. Um, I don't know if, if, a, if an entrapment defense has ever been successful in a case involving very significant uh, sexual violence against a child. But I ask the question <clears throat> from time to time, you know, is, in what circumstance can a reasonable person be entrapped into raping a child? That's not, not a crime of terrorism, but it's a terrible, terrible crime. Uh, and sometimes that flummoxes people because they come into the discussion thinking, you know, cops are bad, they overbear, um, you know, people are weak, people are not often super intelligent. But but I but I wonder how reasonable non-lawyers would answer the question, right? Should there be an available defense of entrapment when you're talking about a certain level of heinousness of the crime? A really provocative question i mean isn't the answer to that to a certain extent like you don't know the age but even that a, a pretty cut i mean like you could rate you could be entrapped to rape a child by not if like depending on what you're counting as child like no, let's say 10 obviously okay. 10. okay yeah okay. so so it doesn't matter what the you know, hey, you're walking around, you're totally innocent. I, and the FBI there are some, thing, come there's up some to you. things that you should not be able to be persuaded to do. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> no matter right. how much money is given to you. No, Andy that... McCurdy, the floor is yours. We're going directly from child rape to you. So, uh, you know, <laughs> don't take it personally. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, uh, I had two questions. Which did you want me to ask? Uh, your choice. You could even do both. Okay. So the first is picking off, piggybacking off of Ben's recent articles. Do you think Merrick Garland has been vocal and public enough in his efforts to reform DOJ? And then second was, how is your project going with Christine Todd Whitman uh, on trying to codify norms? And are you getting any traction in either Congress or with this administration? The second one I answer uh, first quickly. Uh, it's like anything else. Um, you know, things pass the House. There are a number of our reforms that we propose that are that are embodied in some of the House bills, and then get stymied in the Senate. And um, so, I don't know what will happen to those things. Um, and there are other priorities that the administration has before some of those. On 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 uh, Merrick Garland, it's interesting how you phrase the question. It, it wasn't the way you phrased the question. I think was not 
has he done enough to reshape justice? Has he taken enough action? But has he been vocal enough about it to the public, which is what I took you to be asking? Um, and I apologize if I have, don't have that right. Look, I think that speech he gave a week or two ago uh, was a good step. It was very carefully crafted. I think they are hearing the criticism from erstwhile allies of theirs, and it's making an impact on how they want to be perceived. I think uh, that the most important thing that Merrick Garland could do is not enough, but just be sort of a steady presence, uh, saying the right things about how politics has no business in any of this. You know, there was that kerfuffle once when Joe Biden was asked somewhere, I was on a tarmac or, or outside the White House, uh, when Steve Bannon was resisting the the one six committee subpoena and he was i think he was asked a general question so people who defy subpoenas be prosecuted and he said something like yes <laughs> which he shouldn't have said and he walked back and he apologized for but at the same time the justice department uh through merrick garland was very clear and immediate um in putting out a statement saying decisions about who gets prosecuted or indicted are made by the i'm paraphrasing <clears throat> made by the justice department and the justice department alone period and the period was a separate sentence with the word period and followed by a period. That's a strong statement for a sitting cabinet official to make in the wake of a president saying what he said, which pales in comparison to 10 things that Donald Trump said every day about the appropriate and fair and just administration of the laws in this country. So things like that along the way, I think are very good for Garland. They're good for the, the folks at DOJ. They're good for the career rank and file folks. Um, you know, he is a man of few words. He is in the Mueller tradition. So he's not going to explain to us uh, why the department is or is not doing certain things that armchair lawyers like you know, like me and, and others here talk about from time to time. Okay, but I want to push you yeah, on one please. aspect of this. Please. Because we are now coming up, we're about a month and a half away, maybe a month away from the lapsing of the first statute of limitations on obstruction in volume two of the Mueller report. Yeah. And don't hold your breath. I, I'm not holding my breath. Um, on the other hand, uh, it does seem to me that the attorney general should have something to say about a whether Bill Barr's <clears throat> closing of the matter resolves it for the incumbent administration b whether if not whether he's looked at it and closed it himself uh see whether there are matters under review as a result of the uh, this strikes me as pretty similar to when you know when uh barack obama said he was looking forward not backward about you know about uh prosecutions and counterterrorism matters in in when he took office and Eric Holder turned around and said, yeah, but I have some things I want to look at regarding the salt pit and stuff and actually appointed John Durham to 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 look at it. And so my question is, what is the right thing for Merrick Garland to say about volume two of the Mueller report? Is the right thing to say nothing forever? I, look, I think um... I haven't thought about that as deeply as I've thought about some other things. I think that it's not unreasonable. You can make arguments in favor of both that are not crazy arguments, right? And and part of it is an optics politics thing, which I'll try to describe. There are certain things, <clears throat> there are certain things in the country, I don't have a solution for this, but your example is one about which, um, there's just going to be deep division and discord about the decision. And uh, the decisions still have to be made, right? It is a decision to prosecute some of those obstruction events or not to. That's a decision. And, and, and not doing it is, is a decision as well, right? Knowing, so I can see, I could see an aide making the argument, look, for, for legal or other reasons, we're not going to bring the case um and so you shouldn't say anything about it right this is the point i was making a little bit earlier the comey point it is very hard to explain in a satisfactory way and in a, in a way that's appropriate um 
why you didn't do something and you're drawing it. And I'm not saying this is necessarily <clears throat> right or correct. He gives a speech or puts out a statement, you know, we and many, many other people will be attacking it, parsing it. It will have new life. The thousand people who signed that letter um, will all go on television. They'll all write their op-eds. And again, I'm not saying this is good, good or bad necessarily. And I can see an aide saying, you know, you're not supposed to talk about why you don't proceed. Jim Comey got in trouble for that reason. We make our decisions and people have to live with them. We're not a committee of Congress. We don't have to explain. We don't write a report. So <clears throat> we just let bygones be bygones. And by the way, the nice bonus of that is we're not going to get Ben Wittes and Preet Bharara and others to bash us uh, in a louder way than they would otherwise, even though you're bringing that's it up now. ridiculous. I'm, they I'm, should I'm, be I'm, I'm providing saying... us with fuel. I mean, that's the worst <laughs> argument you could possibly make, that they shouldn't be giving us material to podcast about? Come on. <laughs> So I think I think you're in a tough spot about how you talk about it. I think also, I mean, what do you think is the reason why? Um, it's two questions, right? Do do we know that there's ever been in this administration, this Justice Department, a serious look at the question of whether or not we should bring charges on obstruct? Like, there's always two questions, right? Are they considering it, and do they ultimately do it? What I think is more upsetting to would be more upsetting to people if they're thinking about it is not necessarily at the end of the day, uh, at the conclusion of a deliberative process, they decided not to act, but, that, but that they don't. That, that, and again, with respect to the things relating to one six and the big lie in Georgia, I don't see any evidence that the Department of Justice and the FBI are doing interviews or, 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 or taking affirmative steps to find out the facts there. And I, and I do believe that if they were, we would know about it because people who get approached who are in the Trump circle squeal like stuck pigs when anybody tries to ask them a question. On the other hand, I don't think you needed necessarily to do anything outside of, you know, conference rooms in the Justice Department to make a determination about the obstruction counts from volume two. But I don't know if anyone's taken a look. And I, you know, maybe they haven't. Because it's just, you know what, that's old shit. <laughs> we want to look forward, but I'm not going to I'm not going to put it in a memo. Let's look forward. Um, I don't know that anybody is going to Merrick Garland's office and saying, sir, 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 the statute's expiring on some of these. What do you want to do? Do you want to put together a little committee of folks to look at it? But um, I can Pete, just... if you, uh, let me just roll the tape back for a second. Yeah. If you were attorney general and it is January whenever Merrick was confirmed. Was it January or was it February? It was February. Yeah. You come into office and you're aware because you're a sentient human being that Bill Barr closed out all of the issues um, in the in volume two of the Mueller report 48 hours after seeing the uh after the actual draft of after after the actual report was received um and did so with a perfunctory uh two-page letter um uh do you feel an obligation a and i think by the way any of these are defensible a a sort of starry decisis obligation to the prior administration to assume absent new evidence, you don't open, reopen something that has been closed. B, a sense of this is so irregular and weird for the attorney general to do that it requires a, a, a look by the new administration. It may be just a look at the papers. Uh, or C, a sense that you kind of read it yourself and you know if it seems reasonable to you, you defer to the prior attorney general, but if it seems like it requires another look, you give it. What's your, like, he had to have walked in with an instinct about what to, how to think about volume two of the Mueller report. Yeah, so so I don't know what, I, I look, I can tell, AG is a hard job because particularly in the way that the job is structured and the way Congress is structured and the way the country is divided over 
you know, a tiny, tiny sliver of matters that come before the department. You know, the vast majority of matters, um, you know, separate apart from issues of, of, of general criminal justice reform, but most matters are not controversial. They're just not, right? Robberies, sex trafficking, um, you know, kingpins, uh, weapons trafficking, et cetera, public corruption. It's, these, it's a very narrow class of, of investigations relating to people who would be president or ran for president uh, or were cabinet officials in an administration. Um, I do think because of, the, I remember all the options you gave me, but, you know, if you take that job, I think you have a duty to look and inquire about the stuff that went on before, particularly if there are all these hallmarks of irregularity and I think reasonable, uh, you know, publicly known allegations of not just irregularity, but maybe even impropriety. And you figure out a way to depoliticize it as much as possible uh, by creating some kind of internal committee, by figuring out if it's appropriate for the Office of Professional Responsibility or the, or the IG or some outside party, if it is um, workable with the rules and the guidelines. Uh, and then you see, you have to see, right? I'm, I'm a big proponent of investigating. At the end of the day, sometimes people will reasonably disagree on whether or not you pull the trigger or not. But you got to look. If you if you if you take uh, you know certain kinds of jobs in any kind of government, you got to take a look. And, and I, I don't think, and I don't know that he has his attitude. He might be looking and making a determination. I, I would have expected also that there would have been another look at you know the 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 two OLC memos about the propriety of charging a sitting president with a with a crime. I think I think that's overdue for a look also. You, I think they will not those OLC memos will not re get revisited until there's an issue that's ripe. OLC doesn't doesn't look at issues, you know, didn't, apropos didn't, of nothing. Didn't, didn't the maybe I'm mistaken, mistaken, you'll correct me. Didn't both of the last OLC memos get written um, after after the issue of a potential prosecution of the president became the, known? The, the opinions did, the ruling did not. So, uh, uh, the so, Randy Moss opinion. Which so, so, so the, the opinions were both written when the issue was moot with respect to a particular sitting president. Uh, no, the, the 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 issue was decided when the issue was live, and the opinion followed. Followed. Um, it's but they don't they don't tend to do things in the abstract. Richard yeah, Wattenberger. That's, that, that's an observation. I'm not sure that that should be the case. The floor is yours, even though I can't unmute you. I think I may have to. We may have to do what I did. We did last time, uh, David. Uh, the floor is yours while I bring Richard back. Okay. Wait, am I hearable? You are. You're indeed. Uh, let me just let me just read my question. Uh, what do you think are the prospects for trial outcomes for people indicted for January sixth? and related crimes. I mean, a sizable fraction of people think those are the patriots who've committed those crimes. So how do you get a jury that's impaneled with law-abiding citizens? I mean, that's an issue in every case, in every jurisdiction, federal, state, local. Uh, when you have crimes relating to either individuals who are well-known in the community or nationally. Um, and, you know, in my experience, you can always find people, if you have a good voir dire process and you have a good judge, and you have smart lawyers on either side who are trying to guard against having a biased m member of the jury on the final trial jury. I think you can get that. And and I you know there are always people who haven't made up their mind fully. Uh, you sometimes have issues like you're seeing in the Ghislaine Maxwell trial where somebody has a view or has had an experience that they don't reveal or were alleged that they didn't reveal that can do harm to the trial verdict. But you know some of these folks are pleading out. Some of these folks are cooperating and pleading out. Some of these folks are going to have a trial. Some of them are on, you know, fairly minor charges. Some of them on very serious charges. I think, um, I think the, the most interesting aspect of what you're asking is, is with respect to the 10 or the 11 people who have been charged with seditious conspiracy last week. And legal experts go on the air and they say uh, that it's a tough charge to bring. It's not brought very often because the conduct that it's, you know, um, targeted at doesn't happen so often. There have been bad cases and bad results for the government in the past, including the district, Eastern District of Michigan, uh, some years ago. 
And so I don't know how, and that'll be the most high profile trial probably so far of the people who have been charged. It seems to me, however, that a reasonable person can put aside whatever they think about the insurrection and look specifically at the acts of, I mean, I think every defense lawyer in a case like that is going to try to, you know, make the strong point to the jury, whatever, whatever you were doing on January 6th, whatever you were thinking about that day, whatever you were watching on television, whatever epithets you were hurling at the TV, you're not here to judge the event. You're here to look at evidence specifically with respect to my client and hear the facts about that person. And you do some of this in voir dire to make sure that, you know, people are going to be fair and you do it at trial. And my experience has been generally, not always, but generally jurors take that oath very seriously. And they look very narrowly based on what the judge's instructions are at the law and the facts relating to the particular defendant, not at the whole thing um, that they may have had a view about the day it happened. Richard, this time for real, the floor is yours. <laughs> I've been waiting for that for a long time. I'm, um, I'm, you took your chance. You took your moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, Preet, I've been, uh, I, I used to get up to Manhattan quite a bit before the pandemic, and um, I was always um, astonished at how much new construction was going up. Uh, especially around the Hudson Yards area. And so I wanted to ask uh, if you would discuss the extent of foreign money laundering in the New York real estate market and how extensive the problem really is and how much do we see its effects in the city's economy? And um, what are the challenges for prosecutors in bringing these cases in? You know, how much can't uh, go to trial because you just don't have enough evidence? Yeah, <clears throat> about 21.7%. No, I, I, I have no idea when people ask the percentage. By, I, just, by, I always by, answer. By, by, by answering this, you're um, conceding that uh, Hudson Yards was uh, built with dirty money. I just want to say conceding <laughs> no such thing as it as it as Hudson Yards houses one of my one of my several employers. <clears throat> um, look, th there's there's always these concerns. I I don't know what the I haven't been in office for five years. Um, I think, you know, related to a thing you're talking about that, that I find a little bit more interesting than sort of straight money laundering. And, and there's maybe an aspect of money laundering here. But, you know, you have, um, you know, you have these um, these folks from Russia and other places when they have a lot of money and it's ill-gotten gains, where do they put their money? You know, they want to buy, uh, you know, really excellent Manhattan property. And that's why, um, you know, my friend uh, Bill Browder and others think that, you know, the Magnitsky Act and other sanctions acts are really, really powerful. Because if, if you don't let these moguls invest their money and get, you know, marquee properties in the French Riviera or in New York City and other places, if you can, if you can prevent that from happening, maybe you can hold them accountable to some degree. But, you know, as far as percentages of money laundering, I, you know, I don't know. There's going to be that in every major city. Um, you know, real estate is a good is a good outlet, uh, not just art and some other, you know, uh, you know, smaller things. Why are they hard to bring? They're hard to bring because you have to show the flow of money. You know, people are not stupid, uh, usually who have that kind of means. Um, so it's hard, like any other criminal case, it's hard to prove intent beyond a reasonable doubt. <clears throat> and, and obviously to show the specified unlawful activity that's the basis of the money laundering charge, you have to so basically you, you need to prove two crimes right you need to prove the the underlying crime from which the proceeds came and then you also need to show at the second level that those proceeds were laundered so you know it adds a degree of complexity generally on top of what you would normally you know have as a garden variety substantive criminal case if that's if that's an answer oh yeah they're like incredibly complicated but and a little uh, boring to the jury yeah, I mean, that's the other kind of component of all of this is like that we didn't even mention, which is just kind of uh, getting the not only getting the facts, but figuring out everything that you can possibly put under one umbrella and like kind of how difficult it is to construct a giant case versus taking cases like uh, like a, a high sentence, a case, a crime that has a high sentence possibility and is clean and easily explained to a jury as like a strategy move versus making other types of more complicated. Yeah, and how um, to tell a story out of a complicated yeah. morass of 
what amounts to financial transactions, it's really hard. Yeah. Look, you can, <clears throat> you know, I would tell people that if anybody ever said in an opening statement, this is a complicated case or this is a complicated fact, you're fired on the spot. <laughs> um, even though that may be true, you can never, ever, ever say that. And, and in a complicated factual case where you have a lot of transactions and a lot of corporate entities and shell companies and everything else, it's your job to reduce it to its essence of lying, cheating, stealing, which are generally the components of that kind of a crime, and and not bring in every piece of evidence. You know, there's a famous case, not to disparage any other prosecutor's office, but there's a famous white collar case brought, um, I, won't, I won't mention the name of the case, but by a DA's office in New York City some years ago. And they and I think the case did not end well for the government because they just they did too much. You know, yeah. it's like it's like the famous story. You know, there's an argument you make, you know, the defense lawyers will say in summation, uh, you know, there's a witness that the government didn't call. They didn't call this witness or that witness. And, and the standard rebuttal argument by the prosecution is you don't have to call every witness. If if the if, if the batter murders the pitcher on the mound at Yankee Stadium, you don't have to call as a witness all 45,000 people in the in the audience. You, you you call enough people to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's what you have, right? So, in complicated cases, I think there are some sometimes there's this there's this feeling for people who are very granular and know every fact that they must convey every fact that they have taken the time to learn through great difficulty and persistence and work, and must convey all of that to the jury, and that's a mistake. Um, that's why, you know, it's sometimes good to have people look on sometimes on trials um, and significant ones. You, you end up putting someone on the trial team who was not part of the investigation, in part because maybe that person is an exceptional trial lawyer. But also, I found in my experience that they person have doesn't distance. have they have some distance and they understand like the three big themes or important points of yeah. the case. Yeah, it's like it sounds it, it sounds to me like lawyers need editors. They yeah. do. But, well, oh I was actually going to put it differently. I was like, you kind of under, I think everyone underestimates how difficult it is to be an individual that is a lay individual hearing about an event. And all you have is to construct the story from two very different sets of stories that are being told to you. And you can't know the things that they, that they both know. Like, you can't know everything. All you have is exactly what's in front of you. And so if you have a lawyer on the jury, they like translate that story. They can yeah. be one of the people that kind of creates the story. Can make um, one final point about the difference between exceptional investigators and exceptional trial lawyers. And there are, there's a small, there's a Venn diagram where there's a small overlapping set because um, there's some people who are extraordinary at like everything that they do in the law or otherwise. And maybe we don't have time for this, but I'll, I'll try to make it quick. Um, when you're an investigator and facts are becoming known to you, you really can't make a hierarchy of them because you don't know all the facts yet, right? So on Monday, you're looking at financial documents. They may not mean anything to you. Um, the, the, the most uh, excellent investigators figure out a way in their mind to keep in suspended animation the 10 facts from Monday, the 10 facts from Tuesday, the 10 facts from Wednesday, 10 new facts on Thursday. And on Thursday, the 10th fact reminds you, holy shit, that totally connects to the you know, fact three from Monday. And I've made that connection and I can proceed and I issue these other subpoenas. And that's a really, really important skill to have, right? To, to not weigh or rank facts about which you don't have more information so that you can connect them later, right? You're not just dismissing them and forgetting them. That is a terrible quality to have as a trial lawyer, right? Once you have your case and once you know what the presentation has to be, then you have to distinguish between more important facts and less important facts because you've finished your investigation and you need to be persuasive to other human beings who have their own brains and minds and eyes and ears um, and are not lawyers. And so you, you can't be like sort of willy-nilly just telling them all the facts in an undifferentiated way, which I have sometimes seen very good investigative lawyers do a trial. There has to be a definite hierarchy. Like these are the most important facts and these are less so. Um, does that make any sense? And, and, and so sometimes you need the people who investigate the hell out of a case don't necessarily try the hell out of a case. Yeah, that's right. We are going to leave it there. All right. Um, it was so great to have you back on the show. And you're going to have to come American. back and tell us. 
more about your pride. Like it kind of sounds like a practicum that you're teaching at NYU. That sounds awesome. You should so, bring your whole yeah. class on the show. We should do like, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, Preet's class. We we invade their their educational privacy. Uh, it's a HIPAA just, violation. Yeah, it's a HIPAA violation. Well, Scott's very upset about HIPAA. Yeah, violations. please. Uh -oh, please. Is that I, another nano problem? <laughs> no, that that's a that is a that is a giga problem. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, folks. We will be back Wednesday, 46 hours and 53 minutes from now. And until then, Scott. We can't have fun anymore, but if we have problems, let them be nano problems. Thank you, Preet. Thank you, Preet. Thanks. Thanks.